one of the best decisions I could have made for my investing career. I met so many people, got so many ideas. It was amazing. So don't be afraid to do things differently than maybe you initially saw yourself doing. Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with 1 million to 100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then the last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about their pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E, you're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today, Sunitha Rao. How you doing, Sunitha? I'm well, thanks. And yourself? Well, I'm doing well, and thanks for asking. A little bit about Sunitha. She works in corporate financial planning for a biopharmaceutical firm while investing on the side. She's got two years of real estate investing experience. Her portfolio consists of six properties with nine doors, and she's based in Indianapolis, Indiana. So with that being said, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. 
My background is a little different from, I think, many people, especially those in the investing world. So I spent actually the first 10 years of my air quotations professional life as a <laughs> professional tennis player. Nice. I <laughs> so I turned pro when I was like 14. That's why the air quotations are there. Retired at 23, no money, no education. I dropped out of school after sixth grade. I was basically a train wreck, right? <laughs> so don't have my daughter do that then, huh? No, don't, don't. Oh, okay, <laughs> Keep don't. her in school. Okay. <laughs> so at that point, I was all about, let's get a good job. Let's make that stable income. Let's get going with life. There's no reason to be poor and broke for the rest of my years. So I went back to school. I got my bachelor's, got a job at a Fortune 500, a company in their management training program. It's a rotational program meant to breed leadership. And I thought life was great. But as time went on, I realized, and by time, I meant like two whole years. It didn't take me too long to figure out what was going on, I think. I was giving so much of my time to this company and I just wasn't seeing the same like returns back for the time invested. And I started thinking there's got to be a better way to invest my time so that I can have more financial freedom and maybe even earn back some of that time in the future. And that was when I started looking to different areas of personal finance, found actually bigger pockets and real estate investing and just kind of dove in head first studying basically any free moment that I had, because I was also getting my MBA and working full time at that time. Yeah. I like yeah. to have a full plate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it took me about two years to save up a little bit of money. And then I started investing in Indianapolis after I'd saved up that money and gotten a little bit of that knowledge base. However, at this time, I was still based in Boston, still working that full-time job, still trying to make ends meet and figure things out on a single W-2 income salary. So that in itself was a really interesting process. And after that first investment, spring of 2018, a little over two years now, I've gotten up to nine doors using a variety of strategies from for long-term buy and hold. I have an Airbnb. I've house hacked. I'm still house hacking. I've done seller financing, investor financing, you name it. I've had to use a whole variety of strategies in order to make the most of my W-2 income so that I can grow this business as safely and as quickly as possible. Wow. You have just been resourceful and made it happen. When you left the tennis world at age 23, I think I heard you said you went back to school. Now, I imagine you already had your high school degree, right? No. Okay. <laughs> Tell us about that. So you're 23 years old. And what do you mean when you said you went back to school? So what I had was a GED, which was an equivalency diploma, yeah, which that's, I mean, that's that, that checks the box, right? Yeah. But this test is so easy. I feel like if you're even <laughs> halfway literate, I dropped out of school after sixth grade. I didn't know any high school math. I didn't even finish middle school math yet. I don't know how I was able to get a high school equivalency diploma when I didn't do anything after mm-hmm. that, essentially. So yes, I did have a high school degree, but when I went back to school, I enrolled in the local community college and I had to take six to eight months of remedial, basically English and math classes mm-hmm. to get myself back up to a college level. And then I started from there. Okay. And then you got what, your undergrad? Yes. I eventually got got an academic merit scholarship, which is hilarious and wow. so weird, at a private school up in Boston called Babson College. They oh, yeah. focus on business and entrepreneurship. Yeah. So I was really lucky to have landed that spot and ended up getting my undergrad from there. And how were you paying for school? 
through scholarships and merits and I was also working all the time. So I was teaching tennis on the side. I was bartending on the side, waiting tables. I dog sat, I think I babysat. I didn't like kids then. (laughs) Um, I did basically anything I could to fund my existence during that time. So then you saved up some money and you bought your first place. What did you buy and how much money did you save up to buy it? So I think at the time I had about 60,000 saved up. I bought, there were two homes on the same parcel. They weren't attached. It wasn't a duplex. It was a single family home with a detached carriage house. And it was in one of the more affluent counties in Indianapolis while not being in the most affluent cities. So I was getting a lot of the runoff with people who couldn't afford to be in the best area, but still wanted their kids in the best school districts. And they want to be in the low crime neighborhoods and that sort of thing. So it was a really good situation to have found. And I found this while I was still half a country away, essentially. Mm-hmm. So the numbers, the purchase price was 95000 I spent about 11000 in initial rehab and got that rented. And since then, I have transformed this property. It's much more profitable now. At that time, I rented the main house for 800 and rented the carriage house for 500 So it was still about 1.3% price to rent ratio. Mm-hmm. But since then, I've had to invest probably another 13 But I turned the detached carriage home into an Airbnb. It's this 400 square foot level home that is just so awkward and weird. But it's been great as an Airbnb. So I've been doing it about a year. I'm grossing between fourteen to two thousand a month, so that's netting at least a grand a month after all of the holding expenses and stuff. So it's at wow a little over two percent in a very good area. And it's been over a year since you've been doing the Airbnb. How has the impact been over the last three to four months? It's actually not been too terrible. So when COVID initially hit and the travel started to die down, the quarantines were in place, I actually shifted to a medium term rental. So like one month um, here, another person who wanted two months here, I was really lucky to have found it. It's not like I went out searching for it. They just reached out to me through VRBO or Airbnb and were like, what can you do? And I definitely had a little bit of a hit in terms of profit but it's still way more profitable than a long-term rental. So I consider that a win. You bought it for 95000 What type of financing did you get? Conventional. That was my first deal. There's no way I was going into it with cash, not that I had it or any mm-hmm. other option. So yeah, I did the conventional route, but it's actually helped me out getting into it with a little bit more equity because about a year and change after I purchased the property, I refinanced that and a couple others into a commercial mortgage and that property actually ended up appraising for about 140. So I already had 20% equity. It appraised for 140. And then I was able to get a line of credit as a second position that I've since been using to fund other rehabs and other acquisitions. So I actually didn't mind in the long run having a little more equity in that property. I'd like to talk more about that in just a brief moment. But first, you were in Boston at the time. This is in Indianapolis. Are you from Indianapolis? No, I've never been to Indianapolis before pulling that trigger. (laughs) Really? Yeah. How'd you come across the deal? MLS. MLS? But how do you know? (laughs) Were you looking at MLSs in a bunch of cities or what? No, I was focused on Indianapolis. 
So I'm a visual person. And what I did was I built out this map of where the Trader Joe's were in the city, where the good school districts were, where certain kinds of crimes were happening. So I could get a visual depiction of exactly which neighborhoods I wanted to be in. And then when I looked at the MLS, I would look at it in the map view. And when something popped up in my price range in the right area, I could pull that trigger really quickly and know what I was looking at. And how did you have access to the MLS? Through a broker. Through a broker. Okay. So yeah. you were working with a real estate agent. Yep. And did they give you access to MLS or were they looking well, at you have? They would just send me the drip feeds whenever something right. came within my criteria. And that's when I would use the map view. Okay, cool. Well, I want to talk about what you just mentioned. You refinanced that and a couple others into commercial mortgage. Yeah. And then you got money out, plus you got a line of credit. Yeah. Please elaborate on that. This is next one of level. my favorite things. Well, yeah, it's yeah, next level is what it is. <laughs> Thank you. So a lot of people talk about having air quotations, dead equity in the smaller residential area. And I don't think that's 100% true because of what I've been able to do. It also, I think, highlights the importance of not only buying for cash flow, but also buying with plenty of equity and for appreciation in good areas. I'm a firm believer in balancing the two and that it's possible. So I found a lender, it's a local portfolio lender. This was one of the benefits in terms of moving to Indiana because then I was able to network and build the relationships I needed to meet these people. But I found this lender who would take a minimum of five doors. It didn't even have to be five properties, just five doors. And they would appraise it. They would have to have first lien position. So they would have to have the primary loan under their name, but then for whatever equity was left over after whatever they loaned on, they would give a line of credit. It's mm. essentially like a HELOC, but it was under my LLC. So it was kind of like a business equity line of credit. I don't know if that's actually a name, if that's the actual name for it. So I went with them, I refied. And even though it was on a 20 year amortization schedule, they were able to offer a lower blended interest rate that actually brought my payments down. At this mm -hmm. point, I think it's like 200 bucks a month lower, despite being on a shorter amort schedule. And then they did the appraisals on, there were three properties, five doors, and said, okay, you have this much equity. We will lend again, I think it was 80%. I forgot if it was 75 mm -hmm. or 80% of that in this line of credit, which you can basically use as a credit card. So I don't use it a lot of time, but when I need to have the cash for a burr or now that I'm paying that off, if I want to acquire, I can just pull on that cash and be a cash buyer, mm -hmm. which is so impactful and also really helpful because on my single W2 income, it's not like I'm going to have hordes of cash sitting yeah. around. I'm just trying to figure this out and basically get by and grow this as time goes on. So having just this little pile for an acquisition fund is so beneficial. Oh, it's empowering because you know yeah. you've got that in your toolkit and should you choose to exercise it, then you have the ability to close on deals that you wouldn't have. But just the confidence and knowing that you've got that in your back pocket's got to be awesome. Mm -hmm. If you, you had told me two years ago that I would have X thousand dollars just sitting in cash doing nothing until I want to do something with it, I would have told you you were crazy. But there's <laughs> a way to achieve things if you just keep plugging along. So on that refinance where you put it all under a commercial mortgage with a portfolio lender that's local to Indianapolis, just so I'm clear, you didn't get any money out. Just that money that you would have gotten out was 
a part of equity that you have a line of credit against up to 75 or 80%. Is that correct? That is correct. I didn't look into options for cash out refi because I didn't want one. That would it. So let's say I could cash out refi for 200 K, then I could pull that cash out and it would also be sitting there. But then regardless of whether I am using it to earn a return or not, I'm paying for that. I much preferred with where I am at this point in my investment journey to not have to incur extra costs while I'm not using the money. And what do you mean by you're paying for that and extra costs? Because it's essentially a loan, right? So if it's a cash out refi, you're taking out that 200K, you're taking the money from the bank and you are keeping it. And if you get to keep the money, they're like, sure, you can keep it, but you're going to be paying that in a larger loan value. Now I only took out, let's say 150K. Mm -hmm. So I'm only paying for 150K until I want to use that 50. Mm -hmm. When I use that 50 and I can earn a return with it, then I'm like, okay, I'll pay the bank for it because I'm making money off of it anyway. But the rest of the time, I don't have to. Do you remember what the interest rate is? Yes. Initially, it was 5.5 for the primary. And I think the HELOC or the BLOC was 6%. But then when interest rates dropped this year, I went back to them and, and I brought them like a bunch of business and we'd all become buddies. And I was like, guys, help me out here. So they were like, okay, let me talk to underwriting because it was a portfolio lender because they did everything in house. A week later, they came back and they're like, okay, we'll lower your rates. And I didn't have to pay a dime or do anything else. So now I'm at 475 on the commercial, on the primary and 475 on the business line of credit. Good for you. Wow. They lowered both. Yeah. (laughs) I could see them lowering the line of credit rate, but You've got some power of persuasion to have them lower the other one. It wasn't fixed, was it? Five-year balloon. A five-year balloon fixed Mm -hmm. interest rate? Until the five years, and then we'll see after that. Yeah, so they lowered a fixed interest rate? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I'm going to... It pays to make friends. That's me clapping right here. (laughs) That's me clapping. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about what you did right there with the lender who you had a fixed interest rate with, but yet you go to them and you somehow convince them to lower your fixed interest rate. I'm not sure the right question asked other than I'll start with how did you convince them to do that? It's like everything else. You have to add value. If I hadn't worked on building those relationships I make it as easy as possible for them to work with me. If they're working with me because they make money off of me, right? Mm -hmm. And if they need information when they're trying to get something to work, I am on it right away. I answer emails. I don't make them wait. And then as time goes by, when I find people who I think will be a good fit, I'm always looking to connect people. And if I can find people who will be a good fit, then I connect them right away. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I try to make sure the fit will work before I meet with them so that I don't waste anybody's time. What are some examples of how you added value to them in the past other than your business? I brought them other investors who were looking for similar products in the area and who I thought would also be easy to work with and enjoyable for them to work with. It's not enough that they just bring money if the guy's a complete jerk. So I'm very careful with the people I connect. I want to make sure that they'll be able to execute and they'll also just be generally good people. And how many customers have you brought them? Quite a few. I don't know the exact numbers, but these aren't people who have one home or two homes. You know, these are also people portfolios with dozens of homes or millions of dollars, et cetera. So 
I bring them the gamut. And then I also work to help them on their residential space. So there are other people I know who are trying to have HELOCs. I'll connect them. And so then I have an overall holistic, strong relationship with the bank. So even if I'm like, hey, I haven't done anything for a minute for you, but have the other lady on the residential side and I heard things are going well. She's gotten a couple HELOCs, et cetera. So they want to keep working with me because I'm bringing value to them personally, but also to the bank. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. So if you had to guess or estimate about how many referrals you've sent their way, just give it your best shot if you wouldn't mind. Probably at least two dozen, at mm-hmm. least. And they're highly qualified and yes. based off what yeah. you're saying. Oh, yeah. Say you've got a new referral today. Are you sending it to the same person you've been speaking to all along and have that relationship with? Or are mm-hmm. there a couple people that you make sure are always copied on the email so that they see that you're hooking them up? I try not to flood anyone's inbox. So the people who will directly benefit are the ones who will have that connection. Okay. So do you have one point of contact there? It depends on the need. Within that specific bank, there are two points of contact. And I'll loop in whoever is needed at that point. So there's two different people who you have a really strong relationship with. Yeah. Yeah. And you also have to really know what they're looking for and what they can offer. So if someone comes to me with a cash out refi, wanting a contact for cash out refi for X property, and I know someone at that bank, one side of that bank is not going to work. I won't even go there because Mm -hmm. that's not going to be an investor's best interest. It is a warm lead for the bank, but the bank might not be able to execute on that. So why would I want to waste their time? So it's about looking through and evaluating each individual with their unique needs and figuring out how to help them. And that in turn somehow helps you. I don't know, but it's worked. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I have a relationship with a local bank and I have not once asked them, what type of customers are you looking for who maybe I can bring them to you? I've never asked that. Never even thought to ask. And I pride myself on, I have a vision board and on my vision board in the middle, it says the secret to living is giving. <laughs> but not, I love not, that. But I've never even thought of asking the questions that you were asking them and then connecting those dots. It's not just that either. So when I talk to the residential broker there, I'm like, okay, so if I bring someone to you, what's the most efficient way to get them through the process Mm. and to give them the information? And she'll be like, okay, so if this is a situation, just send me an email. If this is a situation, they can apply online. Here's the link. And that also makes it more efficient for both the banker and the person trying to reach out for the loan product. And if they're larger investors, usually I connect them personally so that both sides can build that relationship because there's more possibility for a long-term relationship in those situations. Yeah, that is beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. I will today email my point person at my local bank and ask her in so many words, I'll wordsmith it, but who can I introduce you to or what are you looking for to help your business? And then as a follow-up, what's the best way to do that so that I'm not, as you were talking about, flooding someone's inbox and not becoming a nuisance when I'm trying to help, which is, (laughs) I don't want the backfire. Exactly. Exactly. Well, taking a step back, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? It is to think outside the box. I'm paraphrasing a Steve Jobs quote that I saw somewhere, but it has to do with getting ahead. If you want to succeed or get ahead, look at what others are doing, but do it differently. And I think investing is no different. When we invest in real estate, 
it's the same thing like buying a stock. You're trying to identify a mispriced asset. And if you are looking at everything in the same way that everybody else is, if you're looking in the same place that everybody else is, doing things the same way, you're shooting yourself in the foot. So that's in terms of investing, but then also looking at what others are doing who might have the same goals. So my goal is financial independence. And I have a lot of friends in the fire arena. So one of them was like, yeah, you have to go to FinCon. FinCon, for those who haven't heard of it, the tagline is where money and media meet. It's the largest personal finance conference geared towards those who put out financial content, financial advisors with websites, et cetera. And when he told me that, I was like, you've got to be out of your mind. I don't have a website. I didn't even have an Instagram at that point. I had three houses. I was like, what am I going to do? But I trusted that he knew what he was doing because he was so much more successful. And I went and it was one of the best decisions I could have made for my investing career. I met so many people, got so many ideas. It was amazing. So don't be afraid to do things differently than maybe you initially saw yourself doing. Story of your life, right? Tennis (laughs) tennis from 14 to 23 and then just making a very dramatic pivot. Yeah, basically Thanks for connecting those dots. I had it until just this point. <laughs> we're we're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes, I am ready. Let's do it. All right. First quick word from our best ever partners. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template. Are you serious about taking the first step in the gateway to financial freedom? Then join Jake and Gino on a four-week course that will teach you how to become a multifamily real estate investor. Go to jakeandgino.com. That's J-A-K-E-A-N-D-G-I-N-O.com. Okay. What deal have you lost the most amount of money on? I don't think I've lost money on any deal just yet. However, I did just finish a burr. I literally refinanced three days ago, completed the refi. And that was not as successful as I had hoped because we all make rookie mistakes. I made rookie mistakes on this go around. I neglected to factor in holding costs because it leased and rehab during the time of COVID. So we had trouble getting materials. It took longer. So I didn't take that into account. I didn't take into account refinancing costs, et cetera, et cetera. So I definitely ended up leaving more in the deal than I had wanted. I still would have done it, but that was a little bit sad for me. (laughs) What's the best ever way you like to give back to the community? I am very passionate about social causes. At this point, I'm a little bit dormant in my activities, but in prior years, I've been heavily involved in women's causes, diversity inclusion initiatives at my workplace. LGBTQ community stuff, like presenting at workshops and just doing anything I can to help those who I think don't have as strong of a voice or helping those who may not have allies. And that's really why also I'm in real estate. I really want to be involved in nonprofit work as a long-term goal. I just can't do that right now with my job in real estate. Any nonprofit in particular? Yes. One is the National Coalition of Domestic Violence Against Women. So I am a survivor. So that is something that means very much to me. I'm also, after my time in my LGBTQ ERG at my prior employer, also really passionate about that. I have many friends who are in the LGBTQ community and have seen how they have suffered and been treated unfairly and not been able to have the same experiences and opportunities as 
many of those who have the privilege of being straight or in more of a majority position. So those are two areas I'm particularly passionate about. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? I have a website and I have an Instagram. Both go by the same moniker, griffixpropertygroup.com is my website, G-R-I-F-F-I-X. And then my Instagram goes by that handle, Griffix Property Group. Sunitha, it was a pleasure having a conversation with you and learning from you and your path and your resourceful ways about getting deals done, which we didn't get into a whole lot, but I'm confident that we got into some stuff that was at least equally as valuable, which is adding value and specific ways to add value to lenders so that you can build that relationship and ultimately save money on what is likely your largest expense for the deal. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me.